Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. I'm your host today, Chris Webster, and I'm interviewing Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today, Dr. Garfinkel finishes the discussion about his book coming up in a couple of months, and he talks about his latest appearance on the History Channel show, Skinwalker Ranch. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Again, if you are hearing my voice, that means I, Chris Webster, am interviewing Dr. Alan Garfinkel. So, Alan, welcome to your show. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to uh, reconnect with you, Chris. These uh, shows of ours always sort of go in an organic manner and and end up being more interesting. And as I talk, sometimes it's the first time I've heard it as well as you have. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. But we always have some interesting conversations. It's educational and, and we share some of the... Uh, deep time it reflections that we have about rock art and archaeology, anthropology, and uh, even indigenous religion. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, you know, the last episode, we talked about a book, a publication you've got coming out with two other authors. And I mean, there's so much to cover in that. We wanted to, at least for the first part of this show, talk about that a little bit more. So let's pick up, I guess, kind of where we left off by first talking, uh, giving an overview of the book for the people who haven't listened to the last episode. And then we'll start talking about some of the, I guess, symbolism and the, the what does it all mean stuff that we didn't really have a chance to get into at the end of it. So let's start by giving a, a quick synopsis of what the book is about again for people who haven't listened to the last yeah. episode. Well, let me remind everybody that what we're going to talk about is petroglyphs. These are rock drawings that occur in the Coso range on the western edge of the 
Mojave Desert in the Great Basin in Eastern California. And this is an area that has a tremendous array of rock art. It's one of the greatest concentrations in the entire Western Hemisphere. And the particular or the specialized subject of my study in this book is the projectile point petroglyphs. So these are petroglyphs that actually depict dart points. And in our last episode, we talked about what kind of dart points those were. They were Elko or Humboldt series points that date to the Middle Archaic, we would say, let's say 2000 BC to about AD 1 or shortly thereafter. And what I had mentioned was besides depicting these projectile points and dating them, we have them accompanying decorated animal human figures. And that's rather interesting and has always yeah. been something that uh, intrigued me. So yeah. that's kind of where we, where we got to. We begin talking a lot about dating of rock art and the way in which we approach that issue. Right, right. That's where, you know, it starts to get interesting because, you know, one of the I, one of the things that I thought was interesting and, in fact, actually had a conversation with a colleague a few days after we recorded that, they were finding Elko projectile points in the eastern Mojave and, or around that area somewhere. Actually, you know what? I think it was up closer to Mammoth now that I'm saying that. Sure. He was like, hey, do Elko points really come out this far? And he's like, I didn't actually know that. I'm not sure about that. And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, we just recorded an episode about petroglyphs being drawn with you know, Elko points down in the Coso range. And I was like, that's, you know, that's pretty far. It's <laughs> a good, a good yeah. indicator of, you know, at least how far the people who had knowledge of these points traveled and presumably the points themselves and that technology. So it's interesting looking at that transmission of knowledge and data and how that works. It's nice to be working in the Great Basin because the projectile point styles are rather distinct and there's been a lot of studies to uh, identify them and operationally define them both by their morphology, their attributes, mm -hmm. their metrics, and then also their distribution and the dating. And in the, of course, as you're well aware, in the western part of the Great Basin, we have a short chronology for, for these Elko series points. And so we can uh, pretty much pinpoint them for the most part, that uh, yeah. most of them would date to a rather limited time span compared to the central or eastern Great Basin, where they endure for a far longer period of time, which makes them less yeah. temporally sensitive. Yeah. Indeed. So what we really had going for us, besides the depiction and the analysis of the point forms per se, was that we independently were able to date the glyphs using portable X-ray fluorescence on those glyphs and had uh, several dates that appeared consistent with their chronology. And so that was nice to have a, a cross correlation, be able to pinpoint what we're looking at. And what is that date range? Well, again, it's like, uh, you know, 2000 BC to about AD one. So it's between 4,000 and 2000 years ago would be about yeah. the right span for that, for the Elko series. Now they have a, a doppelganger, a, a, you know, sort of a, a kind of an Elko point that's a little bit thicker, bigger, and looks like Elkos that sort of merge into Pinto points, which are the earlier examples. So it is possible that some of the uh, earliest expressions of uh, depict depictions of Elkos might actually be some of those, 
you know, stray, stray points that began somewhat earlier in the uh, Pinto period or Little Lake period, as it's called. Mm -hmm. Anyways, when we've dated them and when we found them with burials, they've all been within that particular time range I mentioned, the Middle Archaic between 2000 BC and about AD 1. Although Humboldt, which is depicted as well, kind of goes a little further and uh, overlaps the beginning of the development and introduction of bow and arrow points, Rose Spring and Eastgate points. And that begins about AD 1, but that uh, shrine with the bighorn sheep skull on it that had a humble point at its base was dated to about AD 500. So okay. they were still doing their bighorn sheep ceremonialism and ritual and it was still a uh, probably a central part of their religious cosmology. And and how far out does this style of imagery extend? Like where else has this kind of stuff been found? So the sheep-centric petroglyph and pictograph is all over the West, and it's also, of course, yeah. part of the part of the great mural rock art where we have depictions of bighorn sheep that are about one and a half to two times the size of the actual animals. But you see that throughout the entire Great Basin. And also throughout the Great Basin, there are scattered examples of depictions of projectile points. In the uh, eastern Mojave Desert at Newberry Cave, there's a depiction yeah. of an Elko point that's painted in green pigment. That dates right there, I would say about 2000 BC Right. as well. Of course, they dated the uh, split twig figurines. And so that's a, a good example as well. But the depiction of projectile points also occurs in Mexico proper. And so there are petroglyphs that have quite a plethora, you know, a large number of images that are depicting what they say is middle archaic projectile points. And in uh, South Texas, you have that Shumla tradition where they're, they're turning the projectile points upside down and making them look like human beings, anthropomorphs. Those are all, all throughout that whole area. And those also date to this middle archaic period. That seems to be the time when there was a, you know, the peak period of abundance of perhaps larger artiodactyls, you know, game, big game animals, be they bighorn sheep, deer, or antelope. And there appears to have been some sort of what has been called a hunting religion that was expressed in many areas throughout the Southwest and probably in the Great Basin as well. Okay, nice. So one thing I, I've done, which is interesting, you talk about around the world, in the Ukraine, there is a scholar who I've published with, both in um, Russian and in English, about the depictions and use of sort of these horned headdresses, both deer mm -hmm. and for me, bighorn sheep. And those were very popular and also played a part in the depictions of, of these uh, shamans, medicine persons, na Native American doctors, but also uh, you know figures of priests and other powerful individuals that wore these headdresses. So there is that parallel there. And then, of course, one of my colleagues has been all over the world taking uh, cinematography, videography for a film 
on uh, the depictions of bighorn sheep and large, large artiodactyls, horned artiodactyls that are depicted all throughout the world. And I think we had, we had him interviewed early on in this uh, series talking about mm-hmm. what, he, what he has discovered all over the world with respect to this uh, imagery of bighorn sheep and horned individuals and the hunting using of dogs, etc., and how that became so symbolic and so embedded in so many different cultures throughout the world. He found this in um, the Altai in Siberia, in uh, Asia, and many parts of the Americas as well. Okay. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, let's take a break right there now that we've got a good synopsis and a little bit more, and then we'll come back and really dive into this on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right, welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 86. And we are, well, we're talking about all kinds of things. Go back and listen to episode 85 if you haven't done so already, because that really kind of sets the stage for what we're talking about in 86 here. So, Alan, you know, setting the stage again and embellishing a little bit in the first segment, let's talk a little bit more about meaning. I mean, that's really what archaeology is all about. What does it all mean, right? And it's really difficult with rock art. So let's get into that with this particular subject matter. Well, people have said, you know, it's only rock art and uh, it can mean anything you want it to mean. And certainly as an archaeologist, anthropologist, I certainly don't know what was in the mind of the artisan himself in terms of when Mm -hmm. these particular figures were sketched. But that being so, there is a body of knowledge because anthropologists have gone throughout the world and explored and asked the native people, including the native doctors and, and also priests and religious people and others, and learned about the nature of certain symbols and what they mean and why they would be fashioned the way they are in the particular context they are and what they mean in even a broader sense, okay? So, you know, sometimes people have said, well, they're only graffiti and they're just, you know, doing this for fun. Well, that that's really not the case. I right. think when we've talked to Native, Native people, they've told us that these are religious images. They're sacred. These are images of their ancestors. And these are stories written on stone. It's a means of communication. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the stories are rather transparent and one can deconstruct them in a way. 
both by using the knowledge of Native people and by examining it in a broader fashion as well. So one of the things that troubled me from the get-go about these images was as I began to probe deeper and deeper into the iconography, the images, the figures of decorated animal humans and that are paired with or adorned with these dart points, these projectile points, these weapons of war, I found that a large number of them were actually females and they had various anatomical details or signatures or attributes that were definitely communicating that these figures were females. I said, well, if they're females, why the heck would they be shown with weapons of what we consider war or killing or men's weapons for hunting? Because hunting was usually a thing that was done by men and women didn't hunt, you know, large game. And they certainly didn't associate with the manufacture of these right. kinds of dart points that were typically done by men. So I said, well, what the heck is going on here? Well, as I began to probe deeper and deeper into the cosmology, I found out that anthropologists have found that throughout the world, there are images that twin females and weaponry. And mm -hmm. those kinds of images are images that express what's called the master or mistress of the animal's figure or some sort of earth mother, for better use of the term, goddess. So we're looking at, at deities, and these deities right. are express, expressing a whole package of messages simultaneously as symbols you know, are prone to do. The reason we see projectile points, dart points, is because, in part, the habits of using dart points and killing animals to Native people often have a lot to do with sort of, as we say, bringing in the bacon, or it's almost akin to as women birth babies or acquire the plant foods, men acquire mm -hmm. the animal foods, and so this has to do with almost a series of increase, fertility, revitalization, resurrection, transmogrification, all of those different elements all packaged together. And we see that depicted in a way right. showing, showing death and life and the twinning of those kinds of images together. It's a fascinating concoction or conflation of different images that I'd say in the past, we may not have understood them as, as appropriately as we do now. But I think after 30 or 40 years of my exploring this subject, I at least have some educated guesses. How's that? Yeah. And I, I guess what I would ask is, you know, when, when we're talking about studying this, this rock imagery, where else do we see similar imagery, right? Where else do we see this? Is, it, is there some stuff that you're seeing that is literally only ever seen in rock art and rock imagery and, and nowhere else? And if the answer is yes, that might actually be because nothing else preserves like rock art, right? It might have been on something else, but we just simply don't have evidence of it. But maybe some of the more recent stuff, the ethnographic evidence 
you know, do we see this kind of, I don't know, I'm really curious as to where else we could see this kind of stuff in order to help further our interpretation. We see it especially amongst the Hopi uh-huh. and amongst the uh, American Southwest for the uh, Membrace culture. We see it on their bowls. Oh, yeah. Uh, ceremonial bowls that are remarkable. It, within the Hopi culture, we see it expressed in many, many ways, both by ceremony and also by shrines. And so we see these shrines, mm-hmm. and surprisingly, they have the same kinds of imagery and artifacts that we see within the rock art. The Hopi are, are, are somewhat unique in the American Southwest because they have preserved the ancient portions of their you know, cultural mores and religious metaphors. And mm-hmm. they've, they've done this, and we've happened to have documented it in a way because we've had anthropologists studying them for well over 100 years. And also what's interesting is they represent an ancient stratum, an isolate of Uto-Aztecan culture. And of course, okay. we believe the Koso were Uto Aztecan speakers, and there appears to be a deep time stratum that has great consistency and endurance, long-standing nature of certain symbols and certain packages of symbols representing certain concepts that appear in the Uto Aztecan cultural world. Okay. So for, for the Aztec, for the Maya, for the Huichol, for the Hopi, for the Koso, mm-hmm. for all the Great Basin Numic speakers, we can see again and again and again these same hallmark symbols. We call them uh, semiotics symbols or indexical animals. <laughs> Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so all of this appears ag- again, again and again and again. The indexical animal for many yeah. of the desert west animals was the bighorn sheep. Right. Even the Hopi wore the wore the horns of the bighorn sheep, and they had bighorn sheep elements to their cosmology. And it was rather interesting in terms of some of the tremendous similarities between mm-hmm. the imagery amongst the Hopi as that of the Koso. If we look at an historic example. We have the indigenous people of the Tachapis and the Western Mojave, Numic speakers, uh, who are called the Kawaiasu. Mm-hmm. And those Southern Paiute people had a um, particular figure, a uh, deity or cosmological hero, who is emblazoned on a pillar of stone made of limestone. And that image is a master of animals. And that's an entrance into the underworld. And it's associated with a very lengthy and detailed narrative, sacred narrative, yeah. that talks about the um, transmogrification, the revitalization of animals that occurs as a seasonal round. Okay. Yeah. Well, that actually makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about cycles of life. We're talking about fertility. We're talking about the stratum of life, the strata. And I think I've talked about this before, that if you look at some of this rock art as almost a celestial map or a cosmological map of the universe, 
it tells you certain things. I'm looking at a panel right now yeah. that appears to go from the underworld, and we see some uh, very large bighorn sheep, and the horns, the sort of the visual shortcut for a bighorn sheep and its horns turns into a bird, and the birds fly up into the celestial kingdom. And right off to the left is a, a figure adorned with projectile points, four projectile points all across the head of this figure. And then to the right is a bighorn sheep horned individual sort of orchestrating this whole thing that's going on with sort of the underworld moving to the terrestrial world on up into the, the celestial sphere of the sky world. Mm -hmm. So, and that all appears, appears on a panel in the Kosos. Same thing happens on another panel in the Kosos where you see a kind of a rotund individual with a projectile point on his or her head. And you see all of these uh, symbols for fertility. You'll see these fertility symbols, vulvaform symbols, or sometimes we'll show bighorn sheep with their tails erect. And also sometimes there's a spirit arrow sort of entering their reproductive equipment. Yeah. Anyways, okay. that's a whole other one too. You see him in the, you see it in the Southwest, American Southwest Petrified National Forest in Arizona. There's a remarkable panel where it's got a female sort of in mid-birthing posture and all kinds of fertility symbols patterned all over this room. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of animals with upturned tails and also a spirit arrow. There's a cocopelli with a flute. There's, uh, you know, some of them that look like phalluses up there. And there's also bows and arrows. It's all on a single panel. <laughs> it's very easy, easy to understand. Yeah. It's a graphic portrayal of sort of life and a prayer, a prayer for increase and openness to what we would call reproductive fertility or vitality. Yeah. Okay. Is it any of that makes sense? I mean, yeah, kind of, but it's kind of intended not to make sense to me, right? Like that's uh, <laughs> like I think I feel like it really makes it's, sense to it's the a people. Hard thing to who, wrap, wrap. Yeah. Who did yeah. it? Who fashioned it? Because because they live they lived and breathed and understood the nature of this to sort of put our minds in in the same plane as someone who lived hundreds and thousands of years ago is not so simple. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We have a to totally different worldview. We have different priorities. To these people, their top priority was surviving, thriving, mm -hmm. finding some way to guarantee their uh, longstanding nature, vitality in a particular area that was, I would say, somewhat challenging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say so as well. Wasn't much water, wasn't much rain, less than three inches of rain there mm -hmm. in the Kosos. And it wasn't a simple life, but in some ways, it must have been not as arduous or as challenging as we could make it out. Yeah. Because they spent a lot of time making pictures. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> With a couple hundred thousand pictures that we just know about ourselves. So you can imagine how many more pictures there still is out there. Yeah. They've only had, only had about 30% of the country surveyed so far. Wow, that's... I mean, that's that alone is an astounding fact because we make all these predictions based on and interpretations, I should say, based on, I mean, to be honest, not a lot of evidence. When I was really studying paleoanthropology back in college, 
you know, it's like, oh, we've got this whole species over here on the, uh, you know, evolutionary tree. And it turns out that entire species is defined by a fragment of a jawbone. Right. Like it's not it's not quite that bad here. Right. Right. Exactly. But but it is. (laughs) So, yeah, it's like every time we find something, it changes everything, you know. Right. Right. All right. Well, I think. yeah, I think we could continue talking about this forever, probably. I, I would really like right. to get maybe some of your co-authors on as we get closer to the book release and then, you know, specifically talk about their opinions okay. and things on this. For now, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we are going to head back to Skinwalker Ranch. We'll be back in a minute. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 86. And I'm interviewing Dr. Alan Garfinkel on his own show. And I'm not the only one to interview him because, well, not really interview, but you were featured in several segments of the Skinwalker Ranch series. And that's on TV. You can just type in Skinwalker Ranch and you'll find all kinds of stuff about it, including the TV series. And they they didn't bring you back a second time for a recent episode, but they used some footage that they didn't use before. Why don't we talk about first, let's remind our listeners what Skinwalker Ranch is and where it is. And then we'll talk about the uh, episode that was out recently. So Skinwalker Ranch is a ranch in Utah, and it's a piece of ground that has a lot of strange and mysterious activities associated with it. And it's been a show on the History Channel where they have a bevy of scientists working around the clock throughout each season to try to deconstruct and analyze and figure out what is the basis for some of their mysterious circumstances and identities. It's the second most popular show on the History Channel. It gets (laughs) 2 million views each uh, week that it's on. That's crazy. They brought me back briefly for this last show, it's season three, episode 10. And the reason they brought me back was to sort of hear from me a reification or a support of some of the things they've discovered. Well, recently they ran a number of digital, you know, efforts to document the landscape, sort of landscape archaeology, if you will. And they did this with drones. And so the drones went all mm-hmm. over the entire ranch, and then they put together a three-dimensional model of the terrain, the landforms, and all the various elements of the ranch. So when they did that, they did a beautiful job, and they could see all the different elements and landforms that are represented at the ranch, and it looked very well done. But an unusual phenomenon occurred in that there were digital portrayals of what looked like tunnels or corridors that occurred superficially over the landscape and into the sky. 
and I saw those on television. And one of those was actually placed specifically at a site that I visited and talked about earlier. It's the site of a geoglyph. It's on a prominent uh, mesa top, not that large, but it has a serpentining set of basalt rocks that are set up as what we call a geoglyph, a rock alignment or a serpentine rock alignment. And that sits right in the center of the mesa. Now, when you look, I would think it's to the south, you find several images of rock art. One is a serpent, serpentining spiral or a serpent. Another is some sort of a cross, some sort of, a, you know, an adorned, adorned cross, encircled cross that is sometimes, yeah. you know, called a number, a number of different ways to examine it. One rock has a hole in it as well. Looks like it's drilled. And when you turn around and look at the landscape, it looks as though there's two serpents set up on the horizon facing each other. And they're made of basalt. They're basalt flows. Now, these are just natural phenomenon. They're part of the lava flow. But often through what they call pareidolia, you know, how people's minds can see things that aren't really there. Well, these are are rather transparent sort of animal figures that are there aligned on the horizon. So you got all that stuff going on right at that, that area. Well, they asked me about, you know, what I thought about this particular spot. And I said, well, this is obviously uh, an area of considerable power and religious significance, obviously a, mm-hmm. a sacred site, a religiously important site, but one that, that often a shaman or a religious functionary, a Indian doctor, would have put uh, images on the rock and probably fashioned that geoglyph or that rock alignment. And this is typically known as a portal. This is a, a particular location where they may have done vision quests or it w- was found that the rocks were alive because they are alive and sentient. Basically, you know, they have, have vitality and can communicate to someone who is, you know, privy to that sort of world. And so this is a connection between what might say is the sky world or the celestial kingdom, the world of the divine and the deities, etc., the power, and one where one can almost commune with the world of the supernatural. And so they brought me on to say those things and talk about portals or connections and, you know, further reified or supported their particular perspective that something's going on there at those particular locations. So that was one thing that was interesting. The other thing that was interesting is they had found that when they study those areas and they electronically examined them, it appears that their instruments uh, produce a particular wavelength. It's like it's communicating with them and producing, I believe it's 6.1 megawatts. I think that's what it is. And this 6.1 megawatts is in fact 
the same frequency that they have found is related to or at the same way as white quartz. White quartz, which is used as a pecking stone to peck and produce petroglyphs and also used as a Hmm. sacred stone, the white stone, and it's placed in the crevices of the rock guard and it's used as stones which are part of figures, including serpents, that are used in the Mojave Desert and elsewhere to produce figures on the landscape. So part of the reason that they may be reading this particular frequency with their equipment is this white quartz has what's called piezoelectricity, meaning it's, it's a stone that can uh, produce internally fire when it's banged against one another. It produces a red glow inside of it. And they, I I think this white quartz is part of what is used in some of the radios and, and some of the electronic equipment. So I'm wondering if, if that can have anything to do with some of their measurements and some of the things that they've discovered. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But it is a mysterious place. It is an interesting place. And, and I think that my anthropological, archaeological, you know, sort of perspective certainly was aligned or supported some of their discoveries of the, you know, the identification of specific sites as having something powerful, something as an emanation, something Mm -hmm. mysterious and something that perhaps only those who can sort of connect with some of these mysterious otherworldly entities and, and, and phenomenon would be able to connect with them. Shamans, as an example, shamanism connects with some of these ethereal planes. And when you've studied shamans, one of the characteristics worldwide is that shamans will use various altered states of consciousness or do this either with uh, a vision quest or using an ethnobotanical or just uh, taking some sort of, you know, tobacco, native tobacco, and then going into a trance almost, and people view that as death. And when in that trance, there seems to be the possibility of the individual leaving their body and going up to the heavens anyways. So that's another sort of level of understanding. And that's a phenomenon and a description that parallels the world of shamans transculturally. If, you know, anywhere throughout Mm -hmm. the world where you have these people who are mystics or shamans or those that really understand a connection of the natural world with the supernatural or the world of, of some sort of a creator, then they are able to do this. They do some things that are rather scientifically impossible. How's that? Or yeah. at least scientifically not, not understood. Right. So what did the recent, <laughs> I mean, no, that's a lot. Um, so what did the recent episode have you talking about? Had me talking about the rock guard, <laughs> talking about the portals, talking about the conduits and the shamanism and what mm-hmm. those representations on the rock and on the landscape mean and represent. And what the Indians tell us they mean and represent is they are codified prayers. They are prayers and stories 
that are meant to be immortal forever. They're forever yeah. written on the rocks. When you talk to a Mojave Indian okay. from the Colorado, he or she will tell you that their cosmology, their religious theology is written on the landscape. In other words, everything they know about the world can be reconstructed by looking at the landforms and looking at the ways in which they have memorialized their various deities mm -hmm. and stories on the land. So have I gotten too esoteric? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Going off in La La Land, have I drank, have I drank the Kool-Aid yet? <laughs> it, it's definitely interesting. You know, you've got all this uh, stuff here. And to be honest, you know, you hear some chatter about the Skinwalker Ranch stuff. I mean, it is popular because people love this kind of thing that, to be honest, they, they bill it a little bit on the side of mystical and, and things like that. And anytime archaeologists or historians are, you know, are confused or something like that and don't know, yes. the public just loves it. <laughs> yeah. And when we think of mystics, there's mystics in Catholicism. And these were people yeah. who were, were intensive, what would you call them, prayer warriors of sorts. Those that, mm -hmm. um, you know, were so, were so intense in prayer and connecting themselves with their deity that sometimes they were able to do things that we don't scientifically understand. It's been documented right. uh, that right. some, of, some of them were able to, you know, levitate. They were able to read minds. They were able to heal people. They were able to mm -hmm. uh, bilocate. They could be in two places at once. They could see things. That other remotely it goes on and on and on, and these are things we just don't understand. But right. I believe that they're that they're valid, and that at some point we will have an understanding of what those all mean. And I think that science and religion, and also understanding mm -hmm. of shamanism, is is becoming a much more valid platform than ever before. And I think we've talked about that before in a, in a number of different contexts. Yeah. And I mean, you got two things going on here, right? We are learning more about this as we, you know, we study, we talk to groups who, you know, practice this uh, historically and some still do to today. But mm -hmm. as all things go, it seems like there's always, you know, people leaving the culture, right? People moving on, people forgetting the past, people forgetting the culture that they grew up with or, or their ancestors grew up with. And I'm talking, you know, in this case, Native Americans and, you know, maybe, I mean, not everybody sticks around, you know, with the family and, and, and stays in it like that. Do you think that, do you think that we are not recording this kind of information quickly enough and that we're, we're never going to gain a full understanding of all this. I mean, as much as we possibly could, I don't think we'd ever have a full understanding, but do you think it's a, it's in your view and the people you've talked to? Well, cer well, certainly. I mean, that, that's, that's rather obvious. There's, we lose uh, you know, a native language every day and many of them have gone by the by very quickly. And when you lose a native language and, you know, the, native speakers, you've lost all that understanding and theology and all the associated baggage that goes with it. And then the same thing goes for those that are practicing, you know, the, the medicine doctors, the Indian doctors, and those that understand this other world, this other level of, of understanding. I always think about this and bring this up. When scientists went out to the Amazon and 
tried to understand how Native people were using some of the ethnobotanicals to create altered states of consciousness and what they had discerned and what all of that came. And they found that with this Banisteriopsis capai, the, the, blue, the purple flowered blue vine that they use, it's called ayahuasca, the huasqueros. So they said, well, you have to sort of use two different plants together and you have to know exactly how to process it and how to do this properly so you can use this and have this kind of experience. The uh, doctors and those that are studying these people were floored. They said, well, how did you ever learn, you know, which plants to use and how to process them? And they said, well, we asked the plants and they told us. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I thought that was very telling, you know, but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that goes under the, a lot of water that goes under the bridge and there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. So I, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't uh, dismiss anything. So I'm sure that in the Indeed. future we'll be able to do a bit more insight and wisdom. But for right now, Skinwalker Ranch is where it's at. Two million people. <laughs> well, okay then. Watching that show. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to stop then. Go check out the Skinwalker Ranch series. There's uh, lots and lots and lots of episodes. How many seasons are they up to? It's, it's a number of seasons. They just keep putting them out. So... Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, like I said, check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. And uh, anything else to add, Doctor? No. As I as I close out, I uh, see you in the flip flop, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.